0: Christmas, well, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Have you heard that line before? What makes Christmas such a wonderful time? Well, according to the popular song that I just quoted from Andy Williams, he says, It's when the kids are jingle-belling, When everyone is telling to be of good cheer, the holiday greetings, the gay happy meetings, when friends come to call. Those are the things that make this season the happiest season of all. You all familiar with this song? Heard it before? It was released in 1963, and it sounds on the surface a, a harmless song, right? Who doesn't want to hear about times when marshmallows are toasting and parties are hosting? Who doesn't like much mistletoeing when hearts are glowing and our loved ones are near? It sounds like a wonderful time, doesn't it? Maybe the most wonderful time of the year. But is that really what your Christmas seasons are like? Parents, how many of you would say, yes, that's how I would describe my children? Kids are just jingle belling. Or how many singles or couples are saying, Where's all that much mistletoeing and hearts aglowing? That's not what my house looks like. Maybe it just was a different time in the 1960s. Some of you grew up in the 60s and say, it was. I was not old enough to live around then. Surely, though, is that really what Christmas was like 50 years ago? Andy Williams says that there were many scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. Have you passed over that line in that familiar song? Scary ghost stories? Since when do people tell scary ghost stories? And sure enough, I did some research and I found out that they did. Check out this quote from one article that says, The practice of gathering around a fire on Christmas Eve and telling ghost stories was such a part of Christmas during the Victorian English era as it is for Santa Claus in our era today. So apparently, scary ghost stories of Christmases long, long ago was a normal part of Christmas, and what makes this time a most wonderful time of the year. Does anyone still do this, by the way? Does anyone tell scary ghost stories? I was racking my brain and thinking, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol has a ghost in it, but it's not very scary, and that's literally the only Christmas story I can think of that has a ghost in it. But the more important question I have for us is, are we telling the true story of Christmas, of tales long, long ago, of Christmases long, long ago? As we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, if you would, turn with me there. If you don't have a Bible, you can find them in the black Bibles in front of you. Matthew chapter 1 can be found on page 807. I think you'll be, find it helpful to have a Bible open and hopefully see that the points of this message will come straight from God's Word. And my hope and prayer is that as we open Matthew chapter 1 and we see and read God's Word, we will hear not just a tale, but a true story of a glory of the first Christmas long, long ago and it will look nothing like what you and I experience. Similar to the way it just takes 50 years for us to look back and say, really, does anybody tell scary ghost stories anymore? Oh how the Christmas fads and traditions come and go. But there is one Christmas that we should hopefully tell the tale of again and again Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and called his name Jesus. When we go back long, long ago to the very first Christmas, There's so many things that don't appear when you look around the town or your home or the celebrations going on this month. And so I want to give you six brief points. And I say brief because they're not long points. They're briefer points. Six brief points about this story that may even surprise you, that in your mind the traditions of Christmas, even the tradition of Jesus... Is it maybe what you normally think about when you think about Jesus and Christmas and the celebrations surrounding them? So first, all of these are, this is not a normal fill-in-the-blank. That's how all these points will go. First, brief point, this is not a normal biography. As we're opening up Matthew's gospel, we're studying now the life of Jesus, Not just because it's Christmas time, but because the plan at this church, if you want to stay and stick around for months and probably years to come, we will be in Matthew's Gospel. It's 28 chapters long. And it's a treatise. It's a a work on the life of Jesus. And as a church, we are Christians, and we want to know who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And so we want to spend time making sure we really get to know Jesus. But as we open up this very first page, we should notice right away, this is not a normal biography of an individual or a leader of, of a world movement. That's not the genre of literature that we have just opened and read from. Now, it might appear that, as many biographies do, they start out telling you, well, where they were born and a little bit about their parents and family. And we see some of those details here, and that might clue people to think, oh, this is a little biography of Jesus. I've read probably four or five different biographies this year of Alexander Hamilton, Martin Luther, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And as I've read those, there is much details about the birth and the parents and the early days of the person. But when you read Matthew's Gospel, I want you to notice how brief these accounts are. I want you to notice how much little attention is given to the birth of Jesus and the parents of Jesus. In fact, by the time you turn the page, if you want to, and you get to chapter 3, Jesus is 30 years old. We have 28 chapters in Matthew, and we go from birth, nothing about his childhood, nothing about his teenage years. I'm kind of curious, aren't you? What was Jesus like as a teenager? And then all of a sudden, he's 30 years old, he gets baptized, and then there's a lot of time spent around his death and the very last week of his life. My friends, this is not a normal biography because it's really not a modern biography. It is a story within a story, And it's to connect you to an ongoing story. That's why when you open your Bibles and you open to Matthew, it's not the first page, and it's not a separate book. It's in the collection of the books of the Bible. And so one hint that you're given right away, even from the passage we just read, is the very first verse. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? But just like last week, in verse 1 of chapter 1, look with me, verse 1, verse 1. Chapter one, verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Some of you were here last week, and you might remember that I said that the words are Biblos, Genesis, Jesus uh, Jesu Christos. That's the first words in the original language, and we said that first word sounds like Bible. That second word sounds like Genesis, and then Jesus Christ. Well, guess what? Now the birth is now the genesis of. Yesu Christos took place in this way. That word Genesis appears again here in verse 18. It is not the normal word for giving birth. It is the word the origins of, the start of. Now, the origins of Jesus Christ. This should connect us to another book in the Bible the Genesis of the Bible, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. This is not a normal biography because this story is a story of a man that is telling the end of the grand story of Scripture. Throughout our time here at Embassy, I've tried to help illustrate this point by saying that the Bible is best, or at least one way to understand the the Bible in a whole, is to understand it as a five-act play, I'm not an expert of Shakespearean plays, but I know that Shakespeare's plays had five acts. So I want you to imagine for a moment that one of Shakespeare's plays gets rediscovered. It was lost. No one found it. But then as you're going through it and you're reading it, you realize there's only four acts. The fifth act is completely gone. The grand conclusion, the the climax of the story isn't there. That's what your Bible would be without the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is to connect and tell and finish the story of the Old Testament. It's not just a biography of another guy. It's a biography similar to when I read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's biography. A spy, a pastor, a martyr, a man who tried to kill and conspired to get rid of Hitler in the times of Germany. That biography tells you a lot about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But I learned a lot about Hitler and Germany and World War II and what was going on during the Holocaust. It was a story within a story. In a much, much greater way, Jesus is the climactic ending point, the fifth and final act of the story of Scripture. What you should understand as you're opening up this biography of Jesus is that it's telling you the final part of the story. So this will have massive implications on the way you read the Gospel of Matthew as the way we read the Gospel of Matthew. If we separate it out and just take it for what it's worth and not connect it to the rest of the story, as you'll even see in just a few moments, you're going to misunderstand it altogether. So I want to ask you, do you want to actually get to know this Jesus or just the version that you'd like to get to know? To humble ourselves and say, no, no, I would actually want to know what the first people who knew and lived with Jesus, as far as we know, Matthew was an eyewitness account of Jesus, lived with him talked with him, walked with him. Would you like to know what Matthew really wants to say about Jesus? Well, then you need to enter into his world. It is not a normal modern biography. It is a story within a story. It is actually the climax ending point of the story of Israel. That's our first point. This is not a normal biography. Second point, this is not a normal engagement between Mary and Joseph. I'm kind of assuming that Simple reading of the English here would kind of clue that away. Let's see it again. Verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, some English translations will say engaged. And that might start getting in your mind the thought that, oh, so Joseph dropped down on one knee. He had a ring. said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. Oh, and everyone was so happy. And then they had a date set, and they just had not yet been married. That idea and concept, you need to get out of your mind. This is not a normal engagement. Betrothal is a Jewish custom where it is a legal binding engagement before the day of actually being married together. Joseph would have had to give Mary's family a bride price and pay for the marriage. It's interesting how we flip that around here in modern culture. I've got three girls. I'd like to have that deal back, right? Right? what's going on here? Let's be biblical, friends. So in the early first century, a man and a woman would come together because the parents have agreed to say, yes, we will accept this gift of money. And we will then set a date where they will come together, they will consummate the marriage, and they will live together. But in the meantime, they will be legally married, they will not live together, they should not consummate the marriage and be intimate with one another. And so there's this period of time of a betrothal period. And that betrothal period is the time that we find ourselves when Mary finds out that she's pregnant. It's very important for you to understand that that's what's going on because if Mary were to get pregnant and it wasn't Joseph, we've got an issue on our hands. That's exactly what happens in our story. This is not a normal engagement. And my friends, this church, we are spoken of in the New Testament to be in a betrothal period. It is important for you to understand this point because this is the point of what your life is right now as a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are betrothed and legally bound and wed to Jesus Christ. But have you moved in yet with him? Are you fully in his presence, person to person, face to face? Has the marriage been consummated? I don't mean that in an illicit way. I mean that in the fullness of knowing and being close and personal with someone. Do we know Jesus like that? No, my friends, we don't but we are wed to him. It is a contract. It is a binding covenant. This is a helpful illustration for us to understand what it means to be a Christian here and now. That's our second point. This is not a normal engagement. Third point, this is not a normal conception. Again, this doesn't take much to figure out, but as we read, you find out that before they came together, which means before they officially finalized the marriage, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, this makes sense, by the way, The divorce her quietly if you're thinking about betrothal. If it's a legal document that says we are now married, then the only way to get out of it is divorce. If I wanted to break off an engagement, I'd say, hey, I'm done, call off the wedding, and there's no need to go down to the courts and sign papers and file for a divorce, if you understand. That's why this is important for you to understand why he had to think, well, what am I going to do? She's pregnant. He's like, I know I didn't do it. Somebody else did. And in his mind, he is not thinking it is by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way to make sense of this. He's saying he was unwilling to put her to shame and resolved to divorce her quietly. Why would she be put to shame? Well, because she had intimacy with some other man. She's now pregnant, and it wasn't him, and so now somebody's sleeping around. And he would prefer to be a merciful—that's probably the better way to translate that word—a merciful and compassionate man. Now, some of you might be familiar with the fact that in the Old Testament— If a woman were to be found in this situation that Mary's in, and she had broken the agreement of betrothal, they had every right to stone her to death. The Old Testament law is very severe at this point. So you see the mercy of Joseph not to do that. But you should probably realize in history at this point, there was not many stonings to death because the Roman government was in charge, and the people weren't really following the Levitical law and the Old Testament laws in the same way at this point in time. So it's unlikely, I think, that even if Joseph wanted to stone her, that he would have got off with it. Either way, the text is highlighting Joseph is a merciful man, because Mary is in a really tough spot. Mary has a baby. Joseph didn't do it. She's betrothed. What else are you supposed to assume? But as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Parents love when children ask, Mommy, Daddy, where do babies come from? A lot of times you say, well, go ask your mom, go ask your dad. Or you might say, well, God puts a baby in there. Or something strange like that, right? Very vague. Well, in this case, that's the answer, but it's not a vague statement. It's the exact answer that needed to be given. The baby came from the Holy Spirit. This is not a normal conception, and Joseph knew it. The text repeats this phrase twice, from the Holy Spirit, If you're not familiar, the Holy Spirit is God's personal and visible presence. You find the Holy Spirit actually on page one of the Bible. In Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But the earth was formless and void. It was like a great wilderness and wasteland. There was nothing about it that was organized. But it says that the Spirit of God, the, the Ruach, the breath of God was hovering over like a bird hovering over her baby chicks. That's the picture of Genesis 1 and 2, is that that Spirit then, as God spoke, he then formed and fashioned the heavens and the earth. The point of pointing out the Holy Spirit and showing you that in Genesis 1 verse 2, the Holy Spirit is the one who is hovering over, who is bringing together all of creation from the very beginning, should help remind you that this baby was formed by that same power that created the cosmos. So, therefore, this spirit, it would not be impossible or too difficult for God to create a baby in a womb. And I know as modern hearers, we're this is impossible. This is medically and scientifically ludicrous. I agree. But do not presume that you're smarter than Joseph, Do not presume as you read the Bible, well, these primitive first century people, they didn't have science like we do today. Joseph knows where babies come from. Joseph knows that it did not come from him, and it must have come from someone else, and it wasn't his first thought, oh, must be the Holy Spirit, you know, that's just how God brings about babies. That's not what he's thinking. He's thinking, some man brought about this baby, and it wasn't me. Therefore, I would encourage you to not look down upon first century people and think that Well, they just believed in more miracles and crazy stuff. No, no. That's not how Joseph is responding. He is just as skeptical as you and I. The reason why this story is in the Bible is because it's true. Why would you put this story in the Bible if it wasn't true? Is this the right way to start off a book that you're making up to tell the people that you would like to create a following? Hey, let's create a story and let's get people to follow Jesus. Let's create a world movement and a leader named Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, this is how his story starts. He has a baby. He's born as a baby by his mother, and everybody thinks that she's this prostitute-like woman. Well, that's a good start. No, you don't start that way. You don't, you don't look in the genealogy like we looked at last week and show all the flaws. The Bible is so transparent. It's so authentic. Uh, it's so authentic and real and genuine, right? If you've never really read the Gospels, I'd encourage you to stick around for the coming weeks. Come back to Embassy for the next two, three years, in fact. As we continue studying Matthew's Gospel, see for yourself. In fact, you don't have to wait that long. You can just start reading today. I'd encourage you to read the Gospels and ask yourself, do these stories sound like made-up stories? Or is there something real to them? Like the way we look at Joseph here and his oh my, this does not seem to be normal. Furthermore, I think we need to make sure we realize that even though the conception was not normal, Mary and Joseph, as far as we can tell, were very normal. Catholic Church in particular has taught that Mary is a perfect woman, that she was the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception is not Jesus' conception, it's Mary's conception, that it was of purity and that she has a sinless life. Friends, as we go along through Matthew, you'll find no details about that. You'll find it not in Mark, not in Luke, not in John. Actually, you won't find it anywhere in the Bible. As a church, we do not bow down to, pray to, or worship Mary because as far as we can tell, she seems like a normal human being that God decided to do an extraordinary thing through. And it's very important for all of us to realize that there's several things that have been taught or understood about Mary and the birth that are really just tales from long, long ago that aren't actually rooted in history. For example, look down at verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. For whatever reason, there's a tradition out there that Mary stayed a virgin for her entire life. This seems to do much harm with what we seem to know. This passage I think makes it clear that, no, she stayed a virgin until the birth of Jesus. Then Joseph and Mary got together, and they had what we understand to be more children. Later on, the Bible will find out that Jesus has a brother. Well, where did that come from? The assumption is Joseph. Anyway, this is not a normal conception, but Mary and Joseph seem like normal people. Let's move on to our fourth point. The name given to Jesus is not a normal name at least when he has it. In one sense, it is the normal name for Joshua in the Old Testament, but in another sense, this name has deep, profound meaning and significance. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The word Jesus, the name Jesus is the word Joshua in the Old Testament, in its Hebrew form. Jehoshua. Jehoshua. And then over time, it got shortened to just Yeshua. Yeshua, so like, my name's Philip, and over time, people just call me Phil. That's kind of what Jesus is like. Jehoshua, Yehoshua. That's the longer Joshua, and Jesus is named after that. But when you put those words together, it's Yah, which comes from the word Yahweh, And Shua, which is the word save. So when you put Jesus' name together, on the surface, it looks like just an ordinary, normal, oh, his name's Joshua. That's a very common, ordinary Hebrew name. And in fact, it was. But no, his name means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is a savior. You will name him. That's not normal either. How many times do parents get told by someone, hey, by the way, I'm going to tell you what to name your children. Does that go over? Well, now they might make suggestions. There might be a grandparent or a mother. They'd be like, well, this would be a nice name for the child. now wouldn't it? Now they drop subtle hints, but nobody says, now listen, this will be the name of the child. It's like, who do you think you are? This is my child. No, no, this is not Mary's child. It is, but it isn't. This is the child through which God will bring salvation. Yahweh is the name for God in the Old Testament, the personal name of God. In the Old Testament, you could read that there's a general name, Elohim. That just means God or gods. And then there's Yahweh, the personal name of the Jewish God. Do you see how this is telling the story of the Old Testament? This is the fifth and final act of our play. You see how it's totally connecting the previous story of the first four acts. And then when you get to Jesus, wow, he is, he's the one, the Genesis, the, the new creation. He, he's the one to which Yahweh is going to bring salvation. Yahweh saves. Now, read it in the original language and notice what this would sound like. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from his sins. There's a little play on words there if you read it that way. His name will be Yeshua, for he will shua his people. Who's doing the saving again? Is Yahweh the God of the Old Testament saving, or is it this baby boy that's doing the saving? Is it it Yahweh who saves, or is it the boy? If you start thinking about this for a moment, you'll start to realize why Christians for the last 2,000 years have discussed that God exists in a Trinitarian nature, which means three persons in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all all the same God with three different persons. So is Yahweh the God, the father of the Old Testament, the the one true God? Yes, he is. So then who's this Jesus? He's he's Yahweh in flesh. He's God's son. So is he going to save or is the son going to? They're the same thing. They're one in their essence. The very name of Jesus points to one of the most complex theological doctrines in the church, the Trinity. God is three but one. That's our fourth point. This is not a normal name. This has depth and meaning to it. And I encourage you to think more about the name Jesus. Number five. This is not a normal salvation. The same verse, I think, can be easily read over with modern ears, and you read a very different meaning from what would have been heard the first time it's read. So let's do it. Let's read it one more time. I want you to think, who is being saved And what are they being saved from? Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yahweh saves. For he, the son, will save his people from their sins. Save who? Now at this point, I don't know if it's you or me, for those of you that have been around church for a while, we know that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. At this point, I'm expecting to hear Jesus, for he will save the world. Right? But that's not what it says. He will save his people. And then from what? From their sins. Well, I wanted him to just save him, us from evil out there. Save us from Satan. Save us from death. Save us from, save us from their sins. So his people from their sins. Are you starting to see that this this sounds different? This is not a normal salvation, at least the way you and I would normally think about salvation. And my assumption is that when you hear that phrase, salvation, most modern hearers and Christians even, many of you probably in this church, you're thinking individually, and you're thinking about your own personal sins. And I'm not telling you that that's wrong, but that is missing a huge point. It's missing, like, the main point. Jesus came as the continuation of the story of Israel. So, in a few moments, we're about to sing a very familiar song, much, much better than Christmas, it's the most wonderful time of the year, a song called, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Here's how the first line goes. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lowly exile, Until the Son of God appears. If you understand that first verse of the song we're about to sing as we close out this service, you will understand this point right here. This is not a normal salvation. This is the salvation of God giving His people. Who? Israel. How do we answer that question? How do we know who are His people? Well, read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the story and the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the people of Abraham, the Jews, the Israelites. And notice the way that the story is summarized in the story of Jesus. In verse 2, it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and so on and so forth. And you get down to verse 6, and Jesse was the father of David. So from Abraham to David, and then there's a little break. And then David was the father of Solomon, who was the wife of Uriah, and then so on and so forth, a whole list of kings, and then you have a little break at verse 11, That Then you have, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And then it says that after the deportation, you have a whole list of other people, most of which, historically, we have no idea who they are. And then eventually, it gets to Jesus Christ. And so then in verse 17, all generations, and this is how he sums up the story of Israel, who the people are. Here it is. Abraham to David. David to exile. Exile to Jesus. If you'd like to summer up the four acts of the play that we're talking about in the Bible, that's one way to do it. Creation, Abraham, David, exile. These are the the four main movements, in, in one sense, of the story before Jesus comes. And then he's saying, then Jesus comes, the fifth and final act of the play. The culmination and the climax of the story is in Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to finish the story. The story left you hanging at the end of Malachi, the very last book. If you turn one page over, Malachi, you'll hear a story of people of Israel that are back in their land. So let's make sure we're all on the same page. Abraham is the father of many nations. He has a big family. Then they go in the land that God promised them, and they start having kingdoms. And they have a king named David. He's like the best king that they ever have. And then they have a bunch of bad kings after him, and the whole thing goes terrible. The story of Israel is a failed mission to be a nation that looks like God. And they do not represent God and his character very well. And so God says, because of your sin, you will be sent out of the land and you will have a foreign nation ruling over you. And that nation at the time was Assyria for the northern kingdom and then Babylon. That's the Babylonian deportation that's being referred to here. After 70 years of being outside of the land, the people come back into the land. They're back home but only one-third of maybe the whole group. So not everybody's back. And then as they're back, the king of Persia is still ruling and reigning, and it goes from king to king. Israel never has a king on the throne again. So they're back in the land, but they don't have the true presence of God in their midst because they rebuild the temple, and as they rebuild the temple, they're worshiping Lame animals and blind animals and doing all kinds of things that are disgracing the temple. There is not the fullness of return from exile. To put it simply, the first four acts tells you about how God blessed a people, gave them land, their sin left them out of the land. When they came back, they never fully got back. Think of it like this. My wife and I got married. That's the start of our marriage. Things are going well, and then I fail I blow it big time. Because of my sins, she decides it's time for us to separate. I get a divorce, but we're separated. And so I leave the house. And so I'm gone for a long while. And it's sad, and it's lonely, and it's difficult. But then, in a turn of events, we come back together. But I don't move back in, at least not fully. I, like, live in a different room. We don't share a bed anymore, and I'm in the basement. And then let's imagine we don't really talk. We don't go on dates. There's no closeness. There's no intimacy. So I'm back and we're together. And maybe to the world it looks like, oh, yeah, they're back together. But, but are we? Oh, not, not at all. That's where you find the story when Jesus appears. They're back in the land. It was their sin that drove them out but they need saved from their sins because the sin that is in the land is still the problem. It's like me coming back. It's like, "Oh, I'm going to change. I'll be so different. I'm going I'm going to I'm going to be a better husband this time." And I don't really change. I'm still the same awful, terrible husband. That's what Israel is like to God. And Jesus comes, and he is going to change the whole story. That's what this is being said. When Jesus is going to save his people, he's talking about Israel, from their sins, because their sins is the problem that got them out of exile, and Jesus is going to bring them all back together again, restore the marriage, restore the union and the closeness between God and his people. That's the story of Jesus. And my guess is that most of you, when you hear that verse, you're thinking about you and your sins individually. The Bible is thinking about Israel and its sins, its sins that led them out of exile, and it's because of Jesus that is going to restore and bring the temple right in their midst. You keep reading the story, you find out that that temple is not a building, it's Jesus' body. Because in the next verse, we find out this fulfillment of prophecy brings God with us. That language of Emmanuel, God with us, is about God's promise to restore them back to where the things used to be. So let's go to our sixth and final point. This is not a normal salvation, and this is not a normal fulfillment. A normal fulfillment of prophecy. When we look at verses 22 and 23, we will hear that this all took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When you hear the word fulfill a prophecy, my guess is a lot of us are thinking, well, there's going to be some prediction made. In 2018, on January 21st, at 5 o'clock p.m., this is going to happen. Have you ever heard crazy TV preachers say, the end of the world is going to come at this date, at this time, get ready. That's what we normally think of when we think of prophecy. A specific, very individual time and set. This is going to happen to you tomorrow. Watch out. Go this way, not that way to work, because there's going to be a whatever, you know. That's the normal way I think most of you hear the word prophecy. Prophecy. When he says, fulfills a prophecy, that is not, I think, what he has on his mind. And because there's this virgin thing, it makes us think, oh, wow. Back in the Old Testament, it prophesied that one day there'd be a virgin that gives birth to a son, and it's going to be Emmanuel, God, with us. And that all the Jews were just waiting one day, well, where's this virgin? Where's, where's this virgin? And, and, and when's this baby going to come out of a virgin? That doesn't seem to be what's actually going on when you put all of the pieces together. What's actually going on is the word virgin here in the Old Testament. When you go back to Isaiah, the passage that was read to us from Mike earlier in the service. He read Isaiah chapter 7. There's a story going on between one of the kings. So remember, Abraham to David to the exile. During the time of David, after David dies and then Solomon and eventually you get to a king named Ahaz. So there's a guy. He's king over Israel. His name is Ahaz. And there are two nations that are coming to try and destroy his nation, and he gets scared. Would you get scared if two strong, powerful nations were going to come and try and destroy you? That's what the situation is in Isaiah chapter 7. Ahaz is scared. So he decides, instead of calling on God for help, he calls upon Assyria, another nation that worships false gods and is not in tune with Israel's laws and commands and decrees. This is like betrayal. This is like adultery, Ahaz is going another way to get the support and help he needs, the confidence and trust that God's going to take care of him is not there. So he sells himself out to the Assyrians. And God starts confronting him on this in Isaiah chapter 7 through the prophet Isaiah. And he says, listen, I'm going to deliver you from these two nations. I'm going to do it. And he says, I'm good. I don't need any help. I got Assyria. And he says, look, God, I don't want to put you to the test. And that's the little interchange that was read in Isaiah chapter 7. And God kind of calls his bluff, like, give me a break. And then he says, listen, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign is going to be a young woman will give birth to a boy, and that boy, before he's even old enough to know what's right and wrong, those two nations will already be destroyed. That's the sign. And it doesn't say virgin. It says a young woman will have a baby, and that baby will, will give birth, and before he's even old enough to eat and drink honey and curds and all that kind of stuff when you read it, he's like, before he's even old enough to know right and wrong, God is going to destroy those two nations. That's the sign. So what is Matthew doing by reading this text and saying, where's this virgin idea come from? Because many of you in this room, you're thinking, the virgin birth is kind of a big idea for the Christian faith, and if Matthew's just making this thing up by reading into the Old Testament, well, then maybe the whole thing's a hoax. And that's not the way to think about this. What's going on here is the continuation of a story. And that when you get to the fifth and final act, all of the left out strands of the story that were left dangling, and there's no, they're not tied up. Have you ever watched a, a TV series? Season one, season two, season three. And then at the end of each finale of the season, there's like these cliffhangers. You're like, oh, what's going to happen? Oh, you'll have to wait through the end of the summer, right? Like... Th- that's what's going on. The Bible is one big cliffhanger where there's all these left out story details that like, what's going to happen? This story gets summed up and tied up with Jesus, the story of King Ahaz, the Emmanuel sign. When you get to Jesus, you find out that he is the Messiah, the one who comes through David's line, and he is going to bring salvation and save people from all of their enemies and end oppression and bring Peace. When people read the word virgin, it's because the word maiden or young woman in a Jewish context would have almost always undoubtedly been a a virgin woman. You just read the story about Mary. If she's a teenage woman and she's betrothed, she should be a virgin. And so the idea that it doesn't say virgin should not alarm you. It should just mean that, hey, here's a young woman and she's going to have a child. And in fact, when Matthew quotes this text of Scripture, he's not even quoting the Hebrew that says young woman, he's quoting the Greek translation of the Bible that was 100 years before Jesus. So 100 years before Jesus comes, a bunch of people don't know Hebrew anymore, and they decide to translate the whole Testament into Greek, and when they get to Isaiah 7, they use the word that explicitly means virgin when they translate Isaiah's text, because that's how they understood it to mean. So then when Matthew picks up this verse, he says, listen, there's a sign in Isaiah chapter 7 about how God is going to bring deliverance, and it's about this birth of a son. The question is, did that birth ever happen? Did the birth of that Emmanuel happen? And the answer is yes and no. It seems like Isaiah's son was the direct fulfillment of that, but that he could never fulfill all that that prophecy said. So it's like the story has this left out dangling piece that needs closed up. And Jesus becomes that son. Because if you were here last week, you know that Isaiah 7 leads to Isaiah 8, which talks about Isaiah's son, and then leads to Isaiah 9, which says, "'Now for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given.'" And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And of his reign and rule there will be no end. Did that get fulfilled with Isaiah's son in Isaiah chapter 8? No way. Even though there was a direct fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy with Isaiah's son... There's this greater promise about a son that would come that will reign and rule with a kingdom that will never end. And in this day, at this point of the story, there is not that king. There is not that son. And so when Jesus comes, Matthew's saying, guess what? I found the Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 fulfillment of prophecy. It's Jesus. There's a guy that's born of a young woman, a virgin woman. And he is God with us. He is God with us. That, friends, is the phrase that when God's presence is with his people, it's the end of the exile. It's They're back together again. It's like me and my wife, I'm back in the home and I'm not just living in the doghouse, out in the treehouse sleeping. We're, We're back together. We're one. God with us. God's going to reconcile this separated people. And that's what Isaiah 7 quotation, I think, is really all about. If you read it as just, well, there was this prophecy and prediction that one day there would be this Virgin woman, and oh, let's wait around and flop. It just, oh, that's Mary. She's the virgin woman. It will not make sense when we go to chapter 2 and chapter 3 and see the way that Matthew continues to quote the Old Testament. You have to understand this whole four-part play and Jesus finalizing and fulfilling all that was happening in the previous part of the story. And not just, well, it said virgin, so Matthew read, oh, virgin, okay, That's not what's going on. He's talking about the whole story of Israel. And what this means for us is that because Israel is the nation from which God chose to bring his presence to, it's not just a salvation for Israel. It is a salvation for us and for our sins. And Jesus then becomes the Emmanuel God with us for us. Because the original purpose of Israel was that God would choose out of Abraham all the nations of the earth, including Gentile nations, you and me and everyone in this room are included in this salvation. And what's interesting, I think, about Matthew's gospel is that point is made explicit. Turn with me to the very end of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. On page 835 you will see that this idea of God with us is not just to be held for the nation of Israel, but it primarily at first was that ultimately his people becomes not just the people of Israel, but the people of the whole world. And so in Matthew chapter 28, as Jesus dies, is buried, three days stays in a tomb— Rises again from the dead, he comes and tells his disciples these words in Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, not just in Israel, but of all the nations. And baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That's that Trinity thing I was telling you about earlier. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And here's our phrase, And behold, I am with you, Emmanuel, God with us, to the very end of the age. The reason why this story matters for us, well, who cares if a Messiah comes for the nation of Israel? You should, because that Messiah is now your Messiah. Because this is the only way that God will bring the reconciliation that the whole world needs, the healing and the salvation from your sins. You see, all of us are just... Another failed Israel experiment. All of us are just another Adam and Eve. God chose us. He put us in his presence. And we rejected it. And we said, no, God, I'd rather do things my own way. And therefore, we are all exiled. We are all banished. We're all in the doghouse. We're all separated from God. But God in his kindness sent Jesus first to Israel to save them from their sins. So that once he becomes the savior of that nation... He could be the Savior of all. So if you're here today at this Christmas season and you're thinking, you know, Christmas time sounds like fun. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Everybody's so happy. But honestly, I'm really lonely. I have a lot of bad memories of Christmas time. I don't have much mistletoe going and hearts glowing. Where's my loved ones and friends who are near? You can know right now That Christmas does not need to be lonely for you. God with us, God with you. If you'd make Jesus the one hope and aspiration, the one reason that Christmas exists, the one thing to celebrate, not just friends and families and marshmallows, but that Christ has come to bring reconciliation and salvation first to Israel, but then ultimately to the whole world, to us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this story means that it's your story? All it takes is for you to receive it. Receive it by faith. Turn from your sins and say, Yes, God, I would like you and me to be back together again. Just think for a moment what Jesus did, all he did to come to you the sacrifice, the life he gave. How much are you willing to sacrifice in order to be with him? It won't always be easy. Joseph and Mary, it wasn't easy for them. In fact, you go to the very first Christmas, I don't think they'd ever say, this is the most wonderful time of the year. She's fear that she might get pelted with rocks. In the next chapter, we'll find Herod wants to kill all the babies, including Jesus. But when you go back to the first Christmas, you see God's promises are being fulfilled and all the story is coming to an end through Jesus so that you and I can receive the most wonderful time of the year, not just at Christmas, but every day. Let's pray together.